Well, last Sunday we took a break from our study in Ezra and considered the benefits of Christ's resurrection. Today we're going to return to the book of Ezra. And just as you're finding that little book in your Bibles, uh, let me offer a word of thanks on behalf of uh, Rick and Brian and Chris and myself. This past week we were in Louisville, Kentucky. I attended the Together for the Gospel conference. It was entitled The Underestimated Gospel. It was good. It was profitable, enjoyable, beneficial. Um, the reason we went was because last year, I think it came out of the Finance Committee and the elders, um, decided to set aside some funds so that as staff we could uh, do something, either by the way of training or spiritual renewal. And so we decided to go as a group to Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, we don't take that lightly. We don't presume on your generosity. And so I want to thank the church publicly on behalf of all the staff for the opportunity to do that. And as it was a benefit to our soul, we do pray in turn it will be a benefit uh, to yours. Uh, The book of Ezra. What are we going to look at today? Uh, The joyful, inducing doctrine of divine providence. I'm only going to say that once. I hope you got it. Here it is again. The joyful, inducing doctrine of divine providence. We are going to behold our God seated on his throne, as we just sang moments ago. In the past three years, three months, I have pointed us repeatedly to the doctrine of providence. Why? Well, that's simple. The Bible points us repeatedly to the doctrine of divine providence. And uh, today's text, again, points us to this most precious truth, and in particular, the fact that this is a joy-inducing doctrine, the joyful-inducing doctrine of divine providence. And we're going to see it in the book of Ezra, chapters 5 and 6. But let me set the context. It's been a couple of weeks, and so the memory starts to go for some of us one or two, and maybe you haven't been here for this series in the book of Ezra, well, that's unknown territory. So let me just briefly set the context. Go all the way back to the very first chapter of the book of Ezra. Look at the very first verse. This sets the tone for the entire book. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and so there's a remnant, the Jews, living off in a foreign land. They've been taken captive. And so in the first year of the reign of this pagan king, Cyrus, king of Persia, Now, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that the captivity would last 70 years. What did the Lord do? He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. As a matter of fact, over a century earlier, through the ministry of his prophet, man of God, Isaiah, God declared Cyrus. He named him by name over a century before this man set foot on foot, on on the earth. He named him by name, and he he declared, I have grasped you by the hand. And though you do not know me, I know you. And though you do not know me, I equip you. And so here we behold our God seated on his throne, having his way in the heart and life and reign of an earthly monarch. Cyrus passes a decree, a proclamation, allowing the Jews to return from Babylon, where where they were living, 
uh, whoever wanted to, make that long journey all the way back to the southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. And so off they went. Those in whose heart the Spirit of the Lord was working, uh, they returned. And uh, everything is joyful. Everything is great. And they set their hands to work. And we move into chapters 2 and chapter 3. And we discover that the first thing they do is they lay the foundation for the temple. But no sooner have they laid that foundation than their adversaries hear of it. Who are their adversaries? Who are their enemies? They're foreigners. They are the descendants of those people whom a former king, a king of Assyria, 100 years earlier, had transplanted into the nation of Israel. And these foreigners were now living in the land. These foreigners hear that the Jews, the remnant that have returned from Babylon, have laid the foundation for the temple, and they oppose it. They try to infiltrate. They attempt to discourage. They attempt to discredit. And what is the result? We read of it at the end of chapter 4. Turn there with me just for a moment. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Somewhere maybe seven or eight years pass, and the work has ceased. The foundation has been abandoned, just left. And the Jews have set their minds to do other things. That brings us, that sets the context then. You've got the history in place and the events that have led up to chapters 5 and 6. We're now ready for what transpires next in God's plan. And so follow along as I begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, he's a civil leader, political leader, the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, he's a religious leader, high priest, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? Now notice verse 5. I'm going to draw your attention to three verses in chapters 5 and 6. Key, key verses. Here's the first one, verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Now just back up, just pause there, look up here. So what, 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 what's, what's happening? Okay, the Jews lay the foundation. Uh, they grow discouraged. They stop. They stop work for maybe seven or eight years. And then in the second year of a new king, it's Darius. Cyrus is gone, long gone. A new king. God begins to work again in the hearts of his people. How? He sends two men, Haggai, Zechariah. We have books named after those men. As a matter of fact, next Sunday, we're going to go to the book of Haggai. And hear what he said. God begins to work through his prophets in the hearts and in the minds of his people, and they re-begin what? The construction of the temple. Now, the empire, Persia, is in a time of turmoil, time of transition. Cyrus, their great king, has died. His two sons have reigned after him, young men. 
And their reign, the two of them together, I think it maybe only covered six or seven years. It's a period of intrigue, a period of turmoil, a period of upheaval, and then all of a sudden Darius grabs the throne. It's likely he was the one who killed Cyrus's two sons. And so he is trying to do what? Establish his control, tighten his grip on the entire Persian Empire. Well, there's a province. There's a province, we read it here, beyond the Great River. What's the Great River? It's the Euphrates. What province is it referring to? The province in which we find Judah, the land of Israel. It's more than just that, but it's part of this province beyond the Great River. And there's a governor who represents the king. What's his name? Tatanai. And Tatanai decides, hey, it's time for me to survey this province and to reestablish the king's rule. And to make sure everyone is paying homage to Darius, the new king. He comes to Jerusalem. What does he discover? These people named Jews with awfully big blocks laying this huge foundation, building this huge temple. And he realizes at one time a powerful king ruled here. At one time this was a powerful city. A king ruling over this city. A king to whom other nations paid tribute. Aha, what's going on here? Is this the stirring of rebellion? Is this the beginning of a challenge to Darius' authority? Who, who, who told you? Who issued a decree for you to rebuild this temple? I want names. And he fires off a letter to Darius to find out what, what he should do. Why? Because the Jews tell him, look, we're doing what we're supposed to do. Uh, Cyrus, you know who Cyrus is. He reigned not that long ago. He issued a decree. He told us to rebuild this temple. And so Tatanai listens to them, he's patient, and he sends a letter, and we have the, a copy of the letter, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 5, it goes all the way through to the end, verse 17. I'm not going to read it for you, but let me give you the gist of it. He simply says to Darius, look, there are these people, part of your kingdom, the province beyond the river, they're building this huge structure. Now this, this was a city that historically has given us problems. This is a city that had its own rightful, powerful king whose control in the days of David and Solomon extended beyond its borders and boundaries. Look, we could be in the midst of an insurrection here. Something might be going on here. They actually say, true or false, I don't know. But they're telling me that Cyrus, your predecessor, told them to do this. I'm looking for a response. Help me out here. What should I do? And in the first few verses of chapter 6, basically verses 1 through 5, when Darius, the king of Persia, receives that letter, he makes inquiry, investigation, a search. And in a town called Ekbatana, they find a scroll. And on this scroll, what do they find? Cyrus's decree, as recorded all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, that decree whereby he encouraged the Jews to return from Babylon across the great river to their homeland, the city of Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. Darius says they're telling the truth. And so from verse 6, 7, all the way through to verse 12, Darius then gives a response. He writes a letter back to Tatanai. And he says, yes, I found it. I found the scroll. I found the decree. It was Cyrus who told them to do this. So here's what you're to do. You're to let them alone. You're to let them get on with the work. Not only that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to finance it. You're actually now going to pay for it. Whatever they want, you're to give it to them. I'm not going to stop there. Here's something else I want you to understand. Any man who dares oppose it, rip a beam from his house and impale him on it. Pleasant thought. 
and turn his house into a heap of dung. Here we have God again working in the heart of a pagan king to accomplish his work, to accomplish his sovereign plans and purposes for his people at Jerusalem. Now follow along in the narrative as I begin reading in verse 13 of chapter 6. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozenai and their associates did with all diligence. Wouldn't you if he threatened impaling you on a beam? What Darius the king had ordered. Now here's the second key verse I want you to note is verse 14 of chapter 6. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. Focus in here. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius. And here's another king that's coming later, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Do you know what year that was on our calendar? 516 B.C. When did Jerusalem fall? When was the temple destroyed? 586 B.C. Do the math? 70 years. What had God foretold through his prophet Jeremiah? 70 years. And then a remnant will return. This house will be rebuilt. And the glory of this house will be greater than the house, the former house. And so here we have the fulfillment of that great prophecy. Verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with Joy, note that word. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, Remember the Passover? That was a feast established at the time of the Exodus. Remember the Israelites had to kill that lamb and spread the blood of that lamb on the doorposts and the lintel. And the angel of the Lord passed over the house in which that blood was sprinkled, sparing the firstborn. Well, they celebrate the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb. For all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Now here's the third verse, key verse, 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Did you catch the three key verses? Let me just remind you of them again. Number one, chapter five, verse five. But the eye of their God 
was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So the eyes of God. Uh, God doesn't have eyes, physical eyes. Uh, What is the the author trying to convey here then? When, When God's eyes are upon us, it's an expression conveying favor, conveying watchfulness, conveying that the Lord is indeed watching over, caring for, providing for. The God who is seated, enthroned in majesty, enthroned in glory, is watching over the Jews in the work that they're seeking to accomplish. In the second key verse, chapter 6, verse 14, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building. Now notice the twofold description here. By decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so here we have this world empire. Here we have these powerful men, powerful kings, who ruled over a huge territory, civilization. It was by their decree, Cyrus's decree, that the Jews were able to return and lay the foundation. It was by Darius's decree that they reinitiated the work and the empire ended up financing the rebuilding of the temple. And it's through Artaxerxes' decree later that the entire city is reconstructed and the wall is completed encircling the city of Jerusalem. So these kings make decrees. These kings issue proclamations by which the work of the Lord is accomplished. Here's the question. Why do they issue these decrees? Because of the decree of God. This is, it's a fancy word, but it's an important word. This is, my friends, what is known as the doctrine of concurrence. Concurrence. Two currents running parallel in the same direction, and yet they come together accomplishing the same purpose. Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, what did they have in view? What did they have in mind? Were they seeking to honor the one true God of heaven? They have their own selfish purposes. They have their own selfish motives. And yet we see that it is God working through the decrees of man, the actions of man, even at times the sinful actions of man to accomplish his own decrees. What he has foreordained from before the foundation of the earth. And now come to the third verse, chapter 6, verse 22, key verse. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord. Who had made them joyful? The Lord had made them joyful. How? I think we find the answer to that in the next statement. And had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Now, does that strike you as odd, that statement? Turn the heart of the king of Assyria to them? Does that strike you as odd? It should strike you as odd. What's Assyria got to do with anything? I thought this was Persia. I thought Cyrus was the king of Persia. I thought Darius was the king of Persia. Assyria's come and gone. Assyria was replaced by Babylon. Babylon was replaced by Persia. 
The kings of whom we have read in the book of Ezra, they're kings of the empire, world empire known as Persia, Cyrus and Darius, powerful men. Why now does, does the author bring it to a head? Why does he sum it all up by declaring that God had turned the heart of the king of Assyria? Did, did he get it wrong? I mean, in, in his excitement as he was writing, did he forget himself for a moment? Oh, I meant Persia, but I've written Assyria. I won't go back and correct it now. No. Uh, is he simply, are Assyria and Persia synonymous terms for him? No. This is purposeful. This is intended. What is he trying to do? He is pointing his audience, he is pointing us back in time, 200 years earlier when this whole mess began. 200 years prior to the completion of the temple is when the whole mess began in 722 B.C. when Assyria invaded and overran the northern kingdom of Israel. That was the beginning of the deportation. That was the beginning of the end. It ushered in 200 years of political chaos, political turmoil, social upheaval. Civilizations come and go. Entire people's groups are annihilated or deported. In the midst of this, the city of Jerusalem is burned to the ground. The temple is utterly destroyed and the people of God are deported. And now all of a sudden, this small remnant has returned from the exile. The foundation has been laid. The temple has been completed. They're overcome with joy as they consider what? This awe-inspiring, God-glorifying reality that he turned the heart of the king of Assyria. Who got this whole ball rolling? Who initiated this entire era, this 200 years of invasion and deportation and rising and falling of empires, of political intrigue, of murder and of rebellion and of rebuilding and of opposition? Who has orchestrated it all? See, he doesn't want us to miss the point. It is God who had turned the king of Assyria, a mere pawn in the hand of the Almighty. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Another pawn in the hand of the Almighty. Cyrus, Darius, they might like to think of themselves as kings, but they are merely pawns in the hand of the Almighty. And as this great truth takes root, and as the people of God survey their history and think back 200 years and take stock, consider what has happened to them, Consider that it is God who has been accomplishing his will among them as he pleases in accordance with his own ordained plans and purposes for them. He makes them joyful. Joyful. And that's why I began, brothers and sisters, by telling you that today we are going to consider what? The joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence. It is a joy-inducing doctrine. It is a joy-inducing doctrine as we sing. We sang not that long ago. Behold our God, our King, seated on the throne. Come, let us adore Him. A joy-inducing doctrine. A doctrine that matters. And if you've got the sermon notes, I'm going to affirm, and you'll see them there, five reasons why this matters. Five reasons why this joy-inducing doctrine is central, crucial, 
pivotal to us as believers, as Christians. There are other reasons. I think these are the, these are the five. These are five that we must focus in on. These are five that we must, we must understand with our finite minds. These are five that we must seek to take to heart. These are five that must be interwoven with our daily experience as we seek to please and worship and honor God. So here we go. I'm going to rhyme them off five in a row. Expound each a little bit and trust that the Spirit of God will impress them upon us. I'm going to refer to a text from the New Testament to explain each. No need to turn there. I'll simply read it. You've got it written there in the sermon notes. You can consult it later. Just hear the words of the Lord and consider what is in view, what it is we're trying to do, what is our aim, what is our purpose. It is to bask in the glory. It is to enjoy. It it, 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 it is to take to heart this joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence. So number one, here we go. It matters. This doctrine matters for building God's house. For building God's house. We're building a house. Not this building. Something much more magnificent than this building. Uh, Not a physical temple like the Jews were building uh, at the time here, the book of Ezra. Uh, We are building a spiritual house. A spiritual household. A spiritual temple. We are involved in a work. We are called to a glorious work, the building up of the body of Christ, the household of faith. Now hear what the Apostle Paul says from Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, as he considers his own labor, his own involvement in the building of God's house. Him we proclaim, the Lord Jesus, says the Apostle Paul. Him we proclaim, warning everyone. And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what we're building. That's our goal. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim the gospel. We declare the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our aim is very simple, that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Now listen to what he adds. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In other words, this isn't an easy task. This isn't a walk in the park. I am toiling, I am struggling as I seek to build God's house. Now, here's the question. In building God's house, how do we, we're involved in it, in building God's house, how do we persist in struggling and in toiling apart from the joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence? without knowing that everything rests in the palm of God's hand, without knowing, understanding, embracing this truth that God is orchestrating everything in accordance with his own sovereign plans and purposes for his people. Friends, what other hope, what other hope can we give to the solitary Christian seeking to proclaim the gospel in the midst of a boundless sea of Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism? What other hope can we give to the believer faithfully seeking to impart the good news to an antagonistic spouse, an antagonistic child, an antagonistic parent? What other hope do we have When a church is overcome with envy and strife. What other hope do we have when false prophets continually spew their poison? What other hope do we have 
when professing believers are in the clutches of sensuality? What other hope do we have when indifference has taken root among God's people? What other hope do we have when all the powers of the evil one are aligned against God's people? Pray tell. What other hope do we have when we crash against the very gates of hell? How do we persist in toiling and struggling in building God's house apart from the joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence? That's lesson number one. Number two is this. It's important. It matters. This doctrine matters for believing God's promises. Notice the word is plural. I'm only going to focus in on a singular promise. I've chosen this one for many reasons. Perhaps the most important reason is this. It's well known to all of us. It's a, it's a promise we hear, we hear quoted. It's used all the time, precious to many of us. Romans 8, 28, where Paul writes, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let me just add a qualifying word here. Perhaps it's important for some of us. Perhaps it isn't. Far too often this, this verse is sort of thrown around promiscuously, applied to all sorts of people in all sorts of situations. It isn't for all sorts of people in all sorts of situations. It's for God's children. It's for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And it is for them alone. It is a glorious promise that we have a God who reigns and he rules all things for our ultimate good. In the verse, in the context, in the chapter in which it is found, Paul is primarily thinking of adversity, brother. He's primarily thinking of affliction, sister. He is affirming, we know. This isn't a mere head knowledge. This is something we know. We know it experientially. This is something that is interwoven with the very fiber of our being. We live it. We breathe it. We consume it. This is what sees us through. Is this unwavering knowledge and conviction. That our God reigns and he rules all things. He works all things together for our good. What is our good? He tells us in the very next verse in the context of Romans 8. Our good is not our material prosperity. Our good is not your health, wealth, and happiness. Our good is our holiness. God loves us too much to deaden us with all these other things. He has one glorious purpose for us in view. It is this, that we might be conformed to the image of his beloved son, thereby being he who is the firstborn among many brethren. Our holiness. How? How do we rest in this promise apart from the joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence? Jacob had a hard life, forced to flee from his home, humiliated in his uncle's home, deceived into marrying Leah, grieved at the time of Rachel's death, disturbed by the murderous ways of his sons Simeon and Levi, perplexed by the licentious ways of his son Judah, robbed of his beloved son Joseph. As he surveys his life, he cries, All this has come against me. Hmm, Jacob, look up, man. All this has come against me. Joseph had a hard life, hated by his brothers, despised, sold into slavery, separated from his loved ones, 
transported to a foreign land against his will, imprisoned on false charges. As he surveys it all and takes stock, he cries, God meant it for good. Those are two entirely different worldviews, are they not? All this has come against me. I feel like that sometimes, more times, well, lots of times. God meant it for good. How do we account for the difference? The joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence. Apart from it, how do we rest in a promise like Romans 8.28? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What other hope? What other hope can we give to the young couple who miscarries? What else do you say? What other hope can we give to the woman who discovers a lump? What other hope can we give to the young man who buries his young bride? What other hope do we give to the young adult who was abandoned as a child? The joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence. That is our only hope. What, how do we rest? How do we rest in the promises of God apart from this joy-inducing doctrine? Number three. Are you still with me? Number three. This doctrine matters for honoring God's name. That's what God is all about. That is God's overarching principle, primary purpose, the honoring of his name. How does he honor his name? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He, has, he is a great king who has decreed all that comes to pass in the history of humanity. He is a king that works directly in the affairs of man. He is a king who is active in everything that happens in this world. He is a king who sovereignly directs All things to their appointed end. How? How do we worship God? Apart from the joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence. Uh, A God? A God whose power is limited? A God whose uh, knowledge is confined? A God whose will is thwarted? My friend is not a worthy object of adoration, but of disdain. We worship a great, boundless, limitless king. It's what we sang, wasn't it? We hold our God. I need to be careful. I don't know about you. I need to be careful when I sing, when I hear music. Anything in a minor key, I'm worshiping. I think it must be the Celtic blood in me. Behold our God. I don't even need the words, I'm worshiping. At least I think I am. I fool myself into thinking I'm worshiping. Because at times there are certain melodies, certain tunes that just kind of Lift us up and carry us along. We dare not confuse that with worship. A worship is a response of the heart to God's worthiness. It, it comes through us through the mind. And yet the words of that song that we sang are beautiful, God-honoring. Who has held the oceans in his hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. 
Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Brothers and sisters, how do we worship apart from the joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence? Number four, this doctrine matters for enduring God's discipline. This doctrine matters for enduring God's discipline. Hear the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 10. It is for discipline that you have to endure. He's writing to brothers and sisters, and the Spirit of God is speaking to us through the Word. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So here's the question. You can probably guess it. How can we endure under the rod of God's discipline apart from the joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence? What other comfort what other comfort do we, do we give to the brother, the sister, suffering and struggling with some grave physical illness? What other comfort do we impart to the brother or sister dealing with overwhelming discouragement and depression? What other comfort do we give to that brother, that sister who has sensed, who knows that, that relationally in some way God, God is not where he used to be? They're going through, passing through a time of desertion. What other comfort do we extend to that brother or sister who is in the midst of a dark valley, cannot see their way out, can see no light ahead? How? How can we endure under the rod of God's providence, apart discipline, apart from the joy-inducing doctrine, Of divine providence. Here again the words from Hebrews 12. Very important. It is for discipline that you have to endure. We don't like that. God disciplines me. Brothers and sisters. God disciplines us more than we're even aware. How many things in our lives. Come directly from the Lord. And are given to us for this. Overarching purpose. To discipline us. As an expression of his fatherly love. And care for us. Why? Because he's treating us as his children. He's disciplining us for a purpose, our own good, that we may share in his holiness. Hear this sentence. There is no greater pledge of God's love for us than his desire to make us holy. Think of Ephesians 5. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself up for us, that is, his bride, his church. Why? That he might present her holy and blameless before him. He loved his people. He loved his bride. He loved those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. He expresses his love, the depths of his love at Calvary's cross, and he has one goal in view, their good. What is their good? Their holiness. God loves us too much to let us go. He loves us too much not to discipline us. 
What a great, reassuring truth. There is no greater pledge of God's love for us than his desire to make us holy. He effects that holiness through discipline. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Number five, the doctrine of divine providence matters for esteeming God's plan. Esteeming God's plan. And you'll see there Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Let me read it for you. This Jesus, notice carefully the words, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How do we esteem God's plan? How do we esteem the cross apart from the joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence? What happened at the cross? He was crucified. He was killed at the hands of lawless men. There we see the depths of man's depravity, our depravity. There we see our enmity toward God. There we see our hostility to all things holy. As the Holy One of God, the beloved Son of God, is is suspended between heaven and earth, crucified, killed at the hands of godless men. And here's the wonder of God's decree. Here is the wonder of divine providence. It was in accordance with his eternal plan. Who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, sinful men did. Because God did. Here we see the wonder of his providence. Here we see the wonder of his plan. A plan laid before the foundation of the world. All of history from the fall. All the way through the patriarchs. All the way through the history of the nation of Israel. In the land, out of the land, back in the land culminating in this place called Golgotha as the God-man is suspended between heaven and earth in accordance with the foreknowledge and definite plan of God. And there we see his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing the sin and the weight of the world. There we see the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a curse for us. There we see the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a grotesque concentration of sin as our sin is reckoned to him and the Father judges him accordingly. And there we see the wonder and beauty of the gospel, do we not? That as we fall at our knees and we prostrate ourselves before the Lord Jesus and as we repent of our sin and as we believe in him and are made one with him, oh, such glory comes out of his humility. We are made one with him. And now God sees us through the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we esteem that? How do we we esteem the cross? How do we esteem the plan of God? Apart from the joy-inducing doctrine of divine providence. There's nothing that my hands can do to save my guilty soul. I cannot cleanse my filthy stains or make my spirit whole. For nothing but the blood of Christ can all my sins erase. 
I dare not claim my righteousness, but hide within his grace. Some of us were reminded yesterday of the words of the Lord Jesus from John 14, precious words. I go, well, in my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. In the Father's house, heaven, many rooms, spacious, welcoming, inviting, our home. And yet a place must be prepared. A place orchestrated by divine providence before the foundation of the world through the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so where we come to him, he who is the way, the truth, and the life, we become one with him, pleasing in the Father's sight. Let me repeat it. Because he now sees us through the righteousness of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we can think of no more glorious truth, no more heartwarming reality than what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus and to be one with your Son, to know sins forgiven, to know judgment is past. And so we celebrate together as we celebrate your gospel. We pray as always, as we've heard your word, that you might come and visit us from on high. Grant us understanding, illumination, dispel the darkness. We pray that you might apply it and drive it home. We pray it for your glory. We pray it for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do ask it. Amen.